0: Good morning, friends. We're going to be primarily in 1 Kings chapter 3 today. If you want to turn there, if I can get this going. Uh, we're going to sandwich that between a couple passages out of Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. And it's going to take us a few minutes to read through it this morning. Uh, and before you start to think, why such a long read? Uh, please don't forget that Paul actually instructed the church through Timothy Not only to preach and to teach, but to publicly read aloud Scripture. Uh, I also want to preface our reading this morning with what I hope is an encouraging, maybe exciting reminder. Nothing new, but a reminder. Uh, This past Thursday, I stood right here and taught the Good News News Club lesson. And part of what I do when I usually teach with kids is just to remind them about the truth that God's Word is actual history. It's actually real people and real places. And it has uh, concrete implications about God's trustworthiness and God's power. Uh, Moses, who wrote Exodus, our story this week was about the Israelites and Moses crossing the Red Sea. And and Moses was a primary source. He was there. He wrote the book of Exodus. He was also there for those events. My oldest son is choosing not to follow Jesus right now. But... uh, He is intensely interested in history and he's recently, this is his first presidential election that he voted in, and he's been trying to figure out the political systems here in America. And he commented to me the other day that there's really no way to make sense of it all because there's no such thing as a primary source of information in it. All the information he's getting is basically opinions about opinions based on other opinions. And frankly, it's exhausting for all of us, I think. And it was a perfect, perfect opportunity for me to remind him, and I want to remind you of that this morning, that we do have access to a primary source. God's word is from someone who is always there for everything. And so this morning, we just have a chance to pause and hear again actual truth from the primary source, and that ought to be refreshing after a week like this last week and maybe months and and all that you have gone through. Uh, Pastor Rob's about to come up, and he's going to exhort us and teach and encourage us from this source of truth, but but let's not take just the reading of Scripture too lightly either. Uh, Our ears are open. Hopefully, our hearts are open to the wonderfulness, the joy of God's Word to each of us. Psalm 19 1 Kings chapter three, starting in verse three. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made me, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor. So that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment made me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you that it is true. Thank you that you are true. You are trustworthy, you are good. Father, increase our faith in this moment increase our faith throughout the week, that we might walk in obedience to you, that we might be bold in telling others of you. Would our church continue to be a place that shines light and gives salt to the community around us, Lord? Bless the message this morning as Rob comes, Lord. Thank you that we can do this together as your family, part of your body. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, good morning. I, I uh, hope that you appreciated and enjoyed that scripture reading Jim just gave to us as much as I did. The, uh, I think we could probably uh, go home with a full bounty of blessing just from that one scripture reading and from the truths that Jim shared with us. We are going to the primary source this morning, really to the only true, accurate source that we can go to for understanding life and knowing how to really love life, and how to kill despair. Uh, We've been talking for the last uh, couple of weeks. Pastor Kyle has been leading us through this beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I wonder how many of you would say, um, yeah, I'm down, I want to live the Ecclesiastes life. Uh, Here's what Solomon said about it in Ecclesiastes 1, 2, he said, vanity of vanities or worthlessness of worthlessness, all is vanity. Everything is worthless. And then again in in the second chapter in verse 17, he says, I hated life. Get that. I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. And again, I hated all my toil. Everything that I did, all my work, I hated my work. In which I toil under the sun. And again, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Are are you with me? Are we in 2020? Okay. Uh, In the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And again, Solomon looks in chapter 4 and says, I saw all the oppressions that are done. Under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. You down for the Ecclesiastes' life? Sounds great, right? But listen, listen again. Let me ask how you'd like to live this life. How would you like to never have another financial worry? You're supplied with a lifetime, and there's no chance that you're ever going to run out. You could buy a yacht. You could buy your own personal jet. You could buy an island in Greece and live on it in a mansion. Uh, You have the job of your dreams. You love what you do. And, And not only do you love what you do, but you're really good at it. In fact, you're essentially making history through the job that you have. And, and here's another part of this life. Uh, you can have your favorite food every single day. You never have to eat broccoli again. <laughs> uh, you have the very best entertainment at the, in the world at your fingertips. You want to be fanned with palm branches? That's good for you. You want to have the best musicians in the world come and sing you to sleep? You can have it. And in the middle of all this opulence, in the middle of this really satisfaction of every personal drive, get this, you remain clear-headed and cogent. You never lose your head in the middle of everything that would normally cause people just to kind of go crazy with all the excess of pleasure. So you really have the best of both worlds. You have complete consciousness of what's happening and complete ability to experience to the very depths of it every pleasure that you could ever imagine. Now, how would you like to live that life? Who wouldn't want to live the life of the the richest, most powerful man or woman in the world? But the two expressions of life are the same. The first And all the oppressions and all the vanity and all the worthlessness is the same life as the man who experienced all of the pleasures of life to the very fullest, who experienced things that you and I can frankly only imagine when we think about really rich or really wealthy or really powerful people. These two are the same experience. The life of utter worthlessness on the one hand, the life of utter pleasure, Solomon lived them both but think about this the love of life and everything in it actually led Solomon get this the love of life and everything in it actually led Solomon to despair not the happiness it sure looks like it should lead to happiness I mean he literally had anything he wanted And he had no concern for the future. His life was as secure as possibly could be. He just didn't have to think, what are we going to do when the dishwasher goes out? He he didn't have to say, how are we going to handle the next financial crisis? He had everything, and it led him to despair. So I really want to ask us, why is that? This morning, I want us to kind of dive in and figure out what took place when a person who had everything came up and said, It is worth nothing to me. In fact, in his own words, I hate life. I I hate life. To help us understand why, uh, to help us really understand how to love life without landing in despair, I want to take us on a foray into the world of wisdom. This morning, the world that Solomon was really the very best person who is most qualified to describe. And it's the world that he shows us through the book of Ecclesiastes. So, our goal this morning, through all that we'll talk about, is really to answer one simple question. Here it is. I'm giving it to you right at the start. If Solomon really was the wisest man in the world, and outside of Jesus, he was, where did he go wrong? As we address this question, we'll discover how to kill our own despair. Because the answer for Solomon is the same answer that we must have for our own lives. So, let's get started by working on an understanding of wisdom as Solomon knew it. What is wisdom? The essence of wisdom is found right there in that passage that Jim just read for us in 1 Kings chapter 3... And, and you'll notice there in 1 Kings chapter 3, if you have it open, that Solomon uses a very fascinating description for what he asked for God. We always say Solomon asked for wisdom, but did you notice what Solomon actually asked for? It was wisdom, by definition. But in asking for it, he did not ask using the word wisdom. He asked for something that underlies the idea of wisdom, that gives us an understanding of what it really is To be a wise person. So in verse 9 of chapter 3, Solomon asks God this one thing Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. Here it is that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? So God's given Solomon a blank check. He says, Ask, get this, ask whatever you want. Ask me for anything, God says. Solomon thinks about it and replies. He says, What I really need, what I really need, God, is an understanding mind, the ability to know good and evil. That's what he asked for. It's true that that is wisdom, but he didn't ask for it by the term wisdom. He asked for something that is really very, very difficult. Practicing justice, exercising true righteousness and governing people, understanding people's hearts, that's a work of God. And Solomon knew he didn't have it apart from God. He requested that he be gifted with the ability to know good and evil so that he could be a good ruler, so that there'd be no miscarriage of justice. And interestingly, this is probably ringing bells for a number of you because this is the very essence. Of what took place in the garden long, long before. In the middle of the garden was one tree that Adam and Eve were not to eat from. And it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's exactly right. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so in one sense we're being cast back. I'd love to explore this another time with you. To the garden to understand something of what's happening now as Solomon, almost as another Adam, has come to the fore and is asking for something, this time in a legitimate way. God said you can ask for anything, so Solomon asked for what he needed. He needed the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, I'm delighted to give it to you. So it's kind of interesting if you think about that garden the tree, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil good or bad? Was it? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not bad. What was bad? It was the disobedience of taking it without permission, it was the disobedience of doing what God had specifically commanded. Adam and Eve, to not do. It wasn't the tree that was bad. It wasn't the knowledge of good and evil that in itself was bad. Solomon here is not asking for a bad thing. I can assure you that if he had asked for something bad, God would not have given it to him. But God says here in in 1 Kings chapter 3, it says in verse 10, It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this. This was a good thing. Yes, I'm delighted to give to you what you're asking, this knowledge of good and evil. Solomon understood his limitations. He knew his youth and his immaturity, and he shows us an amazing heart. He knows that he is not able to wield this knowledge uh, well. That's humility. He knows that what he needs more than anything else is for God to give him something that he does not have. He's looking to be able to judge God's people in righteousness. So Adam and Eve and all their descendants have kind of taken this plunge into a knowledge that was one time forbidden. And now we have the responsibility to manage it. Solomon among us. He did need this now that the fruit has been eaten. And we find as we do this that it is difficult to manage the knowledge of good and evil. That it's as unwieldy as it is desirable. That it's as difficult to truly practice as it is essential that we practice it. We now must practice the knowledge of good and evil. That is wisdom. God wants us to be wise people. To practice the truest sense of the knowledge of good and evil. Solomon did ask through this request for wisdom But I want you to note that it's very different again than the way that it was taken in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Solomon asked for this wisdom with other people in view. It wasn't to fulfill a selfish desire, but with a desire for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And then he asked for wisdom with a confidence in the character of God. You may remember that in the garden, Satan was whispering lies about God to Eve, and she bought the lie. She bought the idea that God was holding out on her, that there was something that she really needed to have that God was not going to give her. Solomon was not asking in that way. He was not impugning the character of God, but believing the character of God, who said, ask whatever you will that's right and true, and I will give it to you. And then Solomon asked for this wisdom with a deep awareness of his personal need. That is a really important thing to know. It wasn't an add-on request, it was essential. Solomon recognized that he did not possess what he needed in order to rule God's people well. So essentially, boiling all of that down, we can say that wisdom is really the righteous ability to discern between good and evil. It's the ability to see through people and situations and to recognize what's true and what's false. Let me help you boil it down a little bit more and say it this way. Wisdom is essentially adding life up and getting the right answers. Adding life up and getting the right answers it's it's a, a famous story that follows immediately upon Solomon's request here in 1 Kings. Uh, you'll remember the story two women come to Solomon. He's just had God give him this gift of wisdom and now it's going to be demonstrated. Two women come, and they're prostitutes. That's a bad beginning. And they bring a baby. And they say, um, Solomon, king, this baby belongs to me. And the other woman says, this baby belongs to me. It's, and, and how in the world do you begin to solve this problem? They didn't have DNA testing. Uh, maybe you parents have been there. I have. Not with a baby. But with children who equally affirm that they are right in telling me the truth. I felt that I needed the wisdom of Solomon. I had one pair of children to remain unnamed do this for hours in the front of my shop. We had company at the time, literally. I mean, so the most awkward moment, we have company. They're sitting in the front of my shop, and both affirm for hours that they are right. What do you do? Cut the baby in half, I guess. I, I, I mean... I'm not sure, we need the wisdom of God. And so, so wisdom here, Solomon comes with the exact right answer. He does call for a sword, says divide the baby in two. And of course the true mother of the living child says, Oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. The liar replied, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Yeah, Solomon had the answer. He got it through that one action, through really being able to add life up and come up with the right answer. He said, give the living child to the first woman. By no means put him to death. She is his mother. Uh, Do you need wisdom? Boy, I need wisdom. I don't have little children anymore, but every day we run into situations that test our ability to understand life, to add life up and get the correct answer. Wisdom is that ability, but it's also simplifying it down a little bit more, understanding how life works. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 34. Again, immediately following our scripture reading this morning, in verse 29 it says, "God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind." Get this, like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men. Wiser than Ethan Ezrahite and Heman and Carcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of, listen, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon understood how life worked. He talked in Proverbs. He sang songs. He understood about trees and beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. If you want an interesting example, you have to go no further than just back to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. This is one example of Solomon doing this very kind of thing, understanding how life works. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Solomon took a look at the ant. He understood how ants work. He understood this portion of the natural creation of God and he used it as an ability to spring from the understanding of the visible world to how the visible world is used by God to teach us about invisible things. So, if you need a lesson on diligence, Solomon says, look no further than the ant. That's wisdom in play. Do you have the ability to look at what is taking, on, uh, taking place in life around you ...and understanding more than that, oh man, the ants are in the sugar again. Solomon did. He was able to take a look at the ant... ...and see the astonishing demonstration of the character of God... ...who made the ant. And that's what he did with all kinds of things here. Songs of trees and beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. He he knew the ways of God's world... He understood how things worked. That's wisdom. He was able to see in the visible world to the invisible world beyond it. He understood that the visible world is really just an illustration of the ways of God, that it is a demonstration of his wisdom and character. So wisdom is the knowledge of good and evil applied in justice and truth. It's being able to add life up and come up with the right answers. It's understanding how life works, but to get right down to something super simple, really, really simple. Here's a two-word definition of wisdom that I think might help us. Skilled living. Wisdom is skilled living. In chapter 5 of 1 Kings and in verse 12, we read that the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. So the Lord gave wisdom, and the outflow of wisdom, listen to the rest of the verse, was that there was peace between Hiram, a neighboring king, powerful neighboring king, and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. So can we just take a look at that and see the skill in living that God gave to Solomon in this thing called wisdom was Actually, the the net result of that was being able to work inside relationships to create peace. This was a complicated situation, potentially, because we have a king and a neighboring king, two very powerful men, and kings are notorious for not getting along well. Solomon employed his skill, the wisdom that God had given him, here in verse 12 of chapter 5, in order to be able to work a relationship that could have been complicated or even disastrous for the people of God had it gone in any other way it was it was very important that that Solomon have this essential skill in living in order to be able to judge God's people well to take care of the people that God had entrusted to him but it's more than that if you look on down in and uh, to a parallel here in 2 Chronicles chapter 2 you find that this idea of skilled living has another idea behind it as well. Because Solomon is making an agreement in 2 Chronicles with the king of Tyre. And here's what the king of Tyre says. Now, I have sent a skilled man. This is in regard to building the temple and Solomon's palace. I've sent a skilled man who has understanding. That idea of a skilled man... Hold on to your hat. A skilled man is the same word for wisdom. He is a wise man. So let me ask you, what did this wise man do with all his wisdom? This one that was sent by the king of Tyre to help build the temple and to build Solomon's house. What did he do? Well, Uh, He would work with gold, and silver, and bronze, and iron, and stone, and wood, and in purple, and blue, and crimson fabrics, and fine linen. He would do all sorts of engraving and execute any design that may be assigned to him. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. That's skilled living. This was a skilled man who understood how to work with his hands. He was wise. Real wisdom understands how life works... And it results in skillful living right down to to get this, being a master of your craft. Are you a carpenter? This wisdom is for you. A a school teacher? You need this wisdom. Are you maybe a mom or a, a dad or a student? You too need this skill in living that makes it possible to turn work. Hard work and sweat into fruitful labor. Really, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, wisdom is the thing that turns, turns hard work into profit. It makes peace from potentially difficult relationships. It gives us understanding of the world and everything that it contains. This is wisdom. But let me show you a little bit more about what wisdom does because Solomon lays that out for us in chapter 7 of the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a lot more that it does. But here are a few of the things, just to pick a few benefits of wisdom, things that wisdom, when it's applied rightly, can do for you. First of all, wisdom produces contentment. In chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, in verses 7 through 10, we read this verse, verse 10. It says, say not, why were the former days better than these? Oh, if only I'd lived in the 1800s. Right? I mean, that's what he's saying, essentially. Why were the former days better than these? Solomon goes on to directly contrast that with wisdom. He says, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. What he's advocating is contentment with where you have been placed by God. Contentment's really an undersold virtue. We, we tend to value other big-ticket qualities much more, things like maybe faith or, or even diligence. But contentment is bigger than we tend to think. It's the capacity to be at peace with my station or my circumstances or my possessions or even my time in history. It's the safeguard that keeps us from thinking that everything would be better if we'd been dealt a different hand. It's not from wisdom to ask that. Wisdom has this beautiful benefit for us. If you're struggling to say, boy, I sure wish that things were different. ...in my life... ...or that I could be in a different time in history... ...or that I could have a different house... ...or a different set of circumstances... ...this wisdom is for you. God wants to benefit you... ...with contentment. This wisdom of contentment is... ...is like a warm coat... ...on a... ...blasting, wintry day... ...of life. This wisdom of contentment knows that there is... ...in fact, evil in every generation... But that the place God has for you and for me is the right place. And it gives us the capacity to accept it. Contentment enables us to operate by faith and to believe that if God had a better place for us to serve in his kingdom, he would give it to us. That's what contentment does on the outside. But on the inside, it's like a fleecy, warm blanket. It wraps us up in peace and comfort. Maybe those are some things you want or need. Well, that's what comes from wisdom. That's when wisdom is truly applied. It gives us the capacity to look at our station, at our place, at our possessions and say, oh, this is from the hand of God and I receive it with joy. Contentment is a benefit of wisdom. Uh, But wisdom does more than that. It preserves life, Solomon says, in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, in verses 11 through 13. Verse 12 says this, the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. it." Wisdom does more than than money. Money can buy things and it's always very nice to have the security that you have money in the bank. To think I actually have something that I can rely on in time of need. People call it, what do they call it? Uh, A savings account? Yes, that's one. A rainy day fund? Yes, right. So I have some money set aside over here and Solomon says there is a protection in money. But money fails at one really key place where wisdom does not. Money can't give you life. Wisdom actually gives life to your living. Money can buy things that will extend or protect your life, but it doesn't give you life. Wisdom does. In, in fact, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18, again, Solomon speaking, he says, she, speaking of wisdom in a personified way, wisdom is a tree of life taking us right back to the garden again. Isn't that funny? Solomon was right there. She wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. They're happy. You wonder what it takes to get to the tree of life. People have been looking forever for the fountain of youth, right? Yeah, here it is. Chapter 3, verse 18, book of Proverbs. You're looking for life? You want to know how to get it? It's not, in this case, a fountain of youth. It's better. It's a tree of life from which... When you eat, you experience the truest and best of lives. Wisdom is a tree of life; she preserves you in every way. That's a benefit. I, I'd like to have that benefit of wisdom. Uh, but wisdom also provides perspective. We see here in in Ecclesiastes chapter seven provides perspective. Uh, it says, "Be not overly righteous." This is verse sixteen. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now that seems a little cryptic to me at first. Because at first it sounds like, wait a minute, so don't work on being too spiritual. Don't work on being overly wise. Wait, well, let's answer the question, what's overly wise? Can you be too wise in genuine godly wisdom? No. No. No, you really can't. It's not possible. So what's Solomon talking about here? Solomon is actually addressing the idea of trying to do with what God has given more than he's asking you to do or subtracting from it. Uh, What God has said is really enough. We don't have to make something up in order to supplement his commands. Uh, Wise people see the world really the way that God made it to be. Uh, just like in the Garden of Eden, where we just were with Proverbs chapter 3, notice that Eve wanted to add to what God said. It kind of made it sound overly wise, right? So so she thought, well, if wisdom is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then super wisdom would be do not touch it. Uh, are Are you tracking with me? That's what we like to do. We like to do that. We want to say... Well, we're going to make this. If God said this, we're going to go over here and make it crazy, crazy good. Only it doesn't make it good. It makes it a lie. Wisdom gives us the capacity to see perspective. Do not be overly wise. Don't make more of what God said than what God said. He said, enough. Wisdom adds perspective, but it also gives strength. In chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, verse 19, Solomon says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Okay, you got the picture. One wise man, ten rulers in a city. Now, we're not told what station this wise man has in life. He could be a very poor man, he could be a very wealthy man. We don't know. We don't know. One wise man, and we have ten that we do know their station, ten rulers of a city. Solomon says, the wisdom of one wise man is better than ten rulers in a city. Could I remind you of a story that you might remember of the wise woman of Abel Bethmeica? Oh, I know that rings bells, doesn't it? Oh, sorry, it didn't. Okay, well, let me remind you of the storyline behind it. This is the wise woman of Abel Bethmeica. David is king. So Solomon's dad, David is king. And um, a rebel by the name of Sheba was prepared to make a revolt. He was trying to revolt against King David. So Joab, David's commander, went out to attack and take down this rebel. The rebel hold himself up in the city of Abel Bethmeacab. Now we've got a problem. Joab is outside the gates with David's mighty army. And was David's army mighty? Oh, yeah. And was Joab a fierce and ruthless Commander, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So now Joab stands outside the city walls of Abel Maacah and is prepared to just take the city down to get one man, Sheba. But a wise woman looked out and spoke to him, and this is what she said to, to Joab. They used to say in former times, let them ask counsel at Abel, and so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. Again, she's fairly brave here, speaking to Joab. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? That's a pretty convincing argument. And interestingly, Joab listened. He said, well, really, ma'am, I'm just looking for one person. I'm looking for Sheba. So? Sorry, they beheaded Sheba. Tossed his head out over the wall. And Joab was satisfied, and the city was saved. Now let me ask you, had there been ten very powerful rulers in the city, would they have withstood Joab's army? No. Sorry, ten's not enough. Was the city wall enough? Nope, Joab would have raised it if he had to. Uh, trust me, look back at Joab's history, he would have. He would have raised that city to the ground if he had to get that man. He would have done it. But it was one woman. One Woman who had wisdom, whose wisdom was strength, strength for a whole city. Is it worth having wisdom? Well, there's some, those are just four. Those are, there's many, many more. Those are four that Solomon lists, four benefits of wisdom that we see just in Ecclesiastes chapter seven. So that's enough. If we stopped right there to say, wisdom is a great thing. God gives wisdom to those who ask. We're told that, by the way, as a reiteration of that to us. You know, God told Solomon, ask for anything you like. Solomon says, I need the ability to discern between good and evil. I need wisdom. God says that to us in James. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom. I'm in line. And I want the benefits, too. So if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives to all people liberally, generously, without reproof, if you come asking in faith. That's a paraphrase, but that's James chapter 1. James chapter 1, God says to you and me, he gives us that same blank check in a sense as regarding wisdom, and says, come, ask for it, and I will give it to you. Just ask in faith, believing, and I will give it to you. Well, honestly, we could probably stop right there and have more than enough. To just think about. But that's not really the purpose that I brought you here this morning. Because I actually this morning want to take us to that question that we started with. And answer, so how is it? (laughs) How could it be that Solomon, the man who possessed this true wisdom, this gift of God. And who experienced all of these benefits. How could he just kind of implode, fall off the map and land in despair that was so deep, so dark. So horrible that he says, I hate life. It's, wisdom is powerful. It's beautiful. It's rich. It gives understanding. It gives a capacity that you'd never have any other way. And it protects. And it gives contentment. And it gives... Where in the world did Solomon go wrong? So I want to take you to the source of wisdom. We look and see that this is kind of the way that wisdom plays out as we've added it up this morning. Uh, Wisdom is is building all the way to just this simple concept of skilled living and it gives all these benefits. But Solomon went wrong. But he didn't go wrong because he lost the wisdom. That's what Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 9 tells us. Solomon retained his wisdom. So in all these life experiments that are going on as Solomon is is testing everything from wine to women and everything in between in the book of Ecclesiastes, as he's testing all pleasures, he never lost his head. That's what Ecclesiastes 2.9 says. He never lost his head. He retained his wisdom. So what did happen? How did it go badly for Solomon? And here's what happened. His wisdom remained, but it remained in isolation. It remained utterly alone. It was separated from its source. It was disassociated from God. Solomon understood how the world worked. He never stopped understanding. It was really his understanding of things like human nature, of the natural world, of the principles of art and architecture, of the essence of good government that made his life a success like no one had ever experienced before. But it was his failure to walk in the light of that wisdom that ravaged his life with dissatisfaction. So success on this hand, dissatisfaction on this hand, ultimately leading to a total emptiness and utter despair and vanity. And it drove him to the edge of insanity. How did he get so off track? He began at the beginning just like all of us must. He began in the fear of God. That's why he came and asked God. When God then appeared to him, he asked God for what was true and right and good. But he got off before the conclusion of the matter. By the time we get to the end of Ecclesiastes in a year or two, I don't know when it'll be. But uh, uh, you'll hear that in the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear, God, and keep his commandments. Listen, the fear of the Lord is the only environment where wisdom really thrives and where all of its benefits are understood and appreciated. It's really the only place. Think about it. Maybe a little bit. Perhaps a a, uh, a crude illustration. Like a whale. A whale is an amazing and graceful animal in one environment. The sea. They're powerful. They're big. They're uh, graceful, sort of, and they're sleek. Uh, and there, you know, there's, um, there's actually a story that some of you, a history story from 1820, some of you may remember, a sailing ship, a whaling ship from, from uh, Nantucket, Massachusetts, headed out to sea. It got out to about the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the very farthest that you could possibly get from land. And a giant sperm whale uh, that they were trying to, they were hunting, uh, turned on them and hunted them. It rammed the ship. Think of this. Now, it was a whaling ship in the 1820s, so a lot different than a ship today, but it rammed the ship so hard repeatedly that it sunk it. Whale is a powerful thing in its own element, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not looking to meet that particular sperm whale. Yeah, it's a powerful thing. But now put that whale on the beach, its skin baking in the sun, floundering, utterly unable to help itself. It's the same whale. It's the same creature. It's still got as much power in its muscles, but it's in the wrong environment. Understand that Solomon continued to have wisdom, but he separated it from the environment within which wisdom really thrives. So he retained the clear-headedness, the capacity to see life, but he lost the connection to its source, which was, in fact, the fear of God. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To turn away from evil is understanding. And again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If you want wisdom, there's just one place to get it. Really, there's only one. It's from God. And it's through the fear of God that we start the journey of wisdom. There is a wisdom that is like a beached whale. Uh, Paul actually talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we read last week. It says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly. Catch this. The wisdom of this world, it is a wisdom but it is folly with God. For it is written, now quoting from Job and from Psalms, he, God, catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, now Psalms 94, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile, that they are vain, that they are empty. God says, yes, you actually may be able to practice a form of wisdom. It's futile, it's vain, and it leads to utter despair. The moment you disconnect wisdom, or frankly, if you disconnect any quality from the knowledge and fear of God, you end up with a shell of the real thing that has lost all its power to do to you the things that you desire most. To give you actual life and satisfaction. In Solomon's life, we're told the exact turning point at which he stopped fearing God. Watch this. I think... There we go. So we have wisdom and we have the fear of God. But Solomon, it says, loved many foreign women from, which the, na- from the nations concerning which the Lord had said, you shall not enter into marriage with them. That's a command. For surely they will turn your heart after their God. Solomon clung to these in love. God gave a command. Solomon said, I don't think that my life is complete. And he went after something just the other side of the fence. He stopped fearing God. He quit actually living in the only environment where wisdom truly exists. Now, I want to say right here... That Solomon did not set out at this moment, I don't think, to become an idolater. I don't think he did. I think he just didn't obey in something that he thought was less significant. It's like, well, it's not going to matter that much. I mean, and after all, I am the wisest, richest, and most powerful man in the world. So what are a few hundred wives? Oh, well, I mean, that is quite a few. But, but, but what does it matter that much? Is it really that big a deal? I'm not an idolater, but, but look at this. That one act of disobedience turned Solomon's heart to other gods. Now, the interesting thing is it did not turn Solomon's heart from fear, but it turned the fear of God into fear of gods. He quit fearing the one true and living God, and he started fearing the gods of all of these women that he brought into his house. In fact, he, um, he began to worship or build houses for truly terrifying, truly horrible gods. This wasn't just an idolatry that was, um, you know, something that maybe we could say, well, that's a little bit pagan, Solomon, but I don't know, it's not that big a deal. It's like, no, no, these were horrible gods of his wives. And he slipped that far. Yeah, that far. He went to the bottom, to the grossest, basest, most ugly idolatry that you can imagine. Solomon went there. But it started just by disobeying God. He just said, I don't think it's that important. I think I'll do it my way in this one instance. So Solomon, ultimately, because he disobeyed God and quit fearing him, he became an idolater. And finally, we see that that disobedience from, of any of God's commands is the way that we can recognize an idol. I think that sometimes we think, especially in modern America, idolatry, I, what in the world is that to me? I, I don't know. We don't worship idols. I mean, I don't have a special stone in my yard that I go and offer oblations on. And I don't offer sacrifices at some special... Uh, special altar somewhere in town and I don't bow down to a mountain or a moon or a sun or I don't do that But but think about it idolatry really begins with simple disobedience because you know what disobedience says disobedience actually is saying my way is a little bit better than God's my thoughts are just a little bit Higher than his. I think I've got this one dialed in a way that maybe God just didn't quite get right. Now we would never say that, right? We'd never say that. But that is what we're saying. The moment we disobey in one small thing. Solomon fell off the wagon of wisdom. Retaining his wisdom, his capacity to see life at this one point of disobedience. When he stopped fearing God this was appalling to God, not only because of the idolatry, but listen to what it says in 1 Kings chapter 11, in verses 9 and 10, it says, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart, Solomon's heart, had turned away from the Lord, that's the idolatry, the God of Israel, but get this, the Lord who had appeared to him twice. So God is saying, Solomon, idolatry, what a terrible thing, but here I have personally, Appeared to you twice and I have commanded you, it goes on to say, commanded you not to go after other gods. God was horrified, appalled, and had to bring judgment. And we read about the judgment later on that God brought as he raised up enemies to take this peace of the king of peace away from him. This wisdom of the man who was the wisest in all the world could not defend himself from what God would bring in judgment, could not defend himself from the, uh, from the taking away of the peace that he so cherished. Because God was against him now. God said, if you serve and fear other gods, I will cut off my people from their land. I will make this magnificent temple, to paraphrase, this magnificent temple you've built, a heap of ruins. And that's exactly what God did. The thing that plunged Solomon into despair was his disobedience to God's commands, flowing from his failure to fear God. I want to show it to you this way. Really, the essence of wisdom is what we've been talking about. That's how you define wisdom. We began with the knowledge of, of good and evil and ended up with skilled living. Uh, And then the benefits of wisdom. We only listed a few, but there's all this essence and all these benefits, but they flow from the source of the fear of God and obedience to him that flows from that fear. What Solomon did, essentially, was cut off the source. It, It was pretty simple. It wasn't complicated. He just chopped it off at the source. He kept the essence. He kept the benefits to some extent. And he landed in utter vanity and despair. Everything was empty, everything was worthless. It was total despair, just because he cut off the source of that wisdom. He still had wisdom, he still enjoyed some of its benefits, but at a terrible price. It was as if the sword in Solomon's hand cut his own flesh and he was found writhing in agony and despair. He disassociated wisdom from the God of wisdom and found that he was not strong enough to bear the weight of it. Because the more you know, the more you actually see how utterly vain everything is if it's not connected to God. It was a very logical sequence for Solomon. Let me show you another way to look at it. Solomon was disconnected from the source of wisdom because he believed the lie that there was something that was bigger and better than God. He, he disobeyed God because he thought that there was something just outside the fence that would actually meet his needs. Pastor and author Tim Chester uses this kind of terminology, this bigger and better idea, to describe our struggle with sinful habits. Oh, now we're talking about where we live every day, right? Uh, our struggle with sinful habits we struggle in these areas because in our minds we actually believe that there's something bigger and better than god it's called my desires that's not wisdom solomon fell in that area he believed that there was something bigger and better than god he believed that fulfilling his lusts his desires would satisfy him he believed that god was holding out on him So think of it, in the middle of the most luxurious of luxurious lives, Solomon believed that he wanted something else. And just like Adam, he failed the test. Adam, Eve, they had everything that they needed. They had all that the garden of perfection could possibly offer Solomon with everything that one could dream of. Yes, these two failed. And that drives us to the Lord Jesus, the only one who could be a true second Adam. Solomon stopped fearing God. He stopped recognizing God as the center of the universe and started thinking that his desires were actually more important. But he did something else. Solomon disobeyed God to get what he thought was bigger and better. So first he thought there's something bigger and better. Then he disobeyed God to get it. It was really at that point that he became completely disassociated from the God of wisdom. He took from, as it were, the tree. He would fulfill his desires by taking what God had denied. And that led to idolatry. The fear of other gods. I want you to see that once the fear of God was removed, Solomon was naturally prey to fearing other gods. This was not an irrational leap. It, it, it's like, how could Solomon possibly end up at such a debased, debauched level of life? It wasn't illogical. It just started with something small. It was, it was once the fear of God was out, once he disobeyed God and said, I'm not sure I really think that God can meet my needs. I'm not sure I really care that much about what God thinks. It was not an irrational leap to go to something else. We all fear something. He just feared another kind of God a really wicked, horrible, terrible, and terrifying God. And this is still the logical next step as soon as we disobey God. We disobey Him in something small. We land in something great because we aren't strong enough to bear the weight. Only God is. And once we disassociate wisdom from the source of wisdom, this is how we end I want to show you one thing from Psalm 19 that Jim mentioned this morning. In Psalm 19, we see that the fear of the Lord, uh, or actually it was before Psalm 19 and those other three places, we see that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But Psalm 19 points out to us that the fear of the Lord is the love of God's law. So now we're taking it and saying, because to me, here's the thing, guys. M- my mind says the fear of the Lord feels like a very abstract concept. Maybe you aren't there, but that's the way it feels to me. It's like, well, fearing God, exactly what is that? How does that work? How do I even get there? What, what does that mean in my life? Well, listen to Psalm 19. Here's what it says. It lists these amazing six ideas about the law of God. The law is perfect. The testimony is sure. The precepts are right. The commandment is pure. The rules are true. These are all things about the law of God, but it lists one that doesn't fit. It says the fear of God is clean. Enduring forever. Now, wait a minute. He has listed five things that are descriptions of the law and one that is not in order. It's it's the fear of God that, it's not parallel, but it is. It is. For this fear of God is, is the belief that he is who he says he is and that he will both reward and punish. It's inextricably tied to keeping the commands of God. The fear of God is clean. It's an intrinsic purity of fearing him that works its way out in doing what he says. I fear him, therefore I obey him. To practice the fear of God is really to love God's law. That just puts it in practical terms. That helps me, because again, the fear of God feels like one of those big, difficult-to-grab concepts. The fear of God, what does it mean? Oh, it means I'm going to love what God says to do. That's what Psalm 19 tells us. You're going to love the law of God, the commands of God, the precepts of God. You're going to love the fear of God. You're going to love what God says to do. And to fear God is to love God obeying him and to love obeying God is wisdom it's the beginning of wisdom because it takes us all the way back all the way back to the basis that Solomon failed in he failed he disobeyed but we by the grace of God don't have to go there we can actually love life We actually don't have to live in the pit of despair as Solomon did. We can retain the wisdom of skilled living and actually experience joy because we know the source of joy. Because we're connected to God by doing what he says. I want to show you what happens when we're not obeying God's commands. When we're not obeying God's commands, it's really an evidence that we're not fearing him. Now, I think, and the reason I say this to us, again, very practical, I hope, for you. It is for me. It's easy enough to say, well, I am too fearing him. I, I fear God. You know, they said in older times than ours, he is a God-fearing man. Is he? Super simple litmus test. Is he doing what God said? Well, I fear God, but I'm going to do... Oh, you're not fearing God. You say you're fearing God. This is just a super simple litmus test. I think Solomon probably would have said through some of this time, even through some of his debased years, I fear God. Only he didn't really because he was not obeying him. I'm doubting when when I'm not obeying God's commands, I'm doubting that his plan is actually best. I think I've got a better plan in mind I'm not really believing that he's better than my desires. And ultimately, I'm trading satisfaction for total despair. I want to leave us just with a few questions today as we wrap it up this morning. Is there somewhere that you don't believe that God is, in fact, bigger and better than your desires? I really encourage you to think about that. I'd encourage you to take that home and say, is that, is that possibly true somewhere in my life, that there is somewhere where I actually cherish the idea that I've got a better plan than God on this one thing? I mean, I fear God. I love God. I, I mean, I actually, well, actually, I don't in this one area. Is there somewhere that I don't really believe that God is bigger and better than my desires. You, you pick the desire. It's, it's your life. I can't look in and see it. I have mine. Things that I think, oh, if I could do this over, I would do it. Oh, be careful. Be careful. Is there somewhere where I think that God is a little bit bigger than, or that my plans, my ideas are bigger and better than God's? You might be thinking about this past week. Yeah? Uh, You you might think, how in the world did we land here? I agree. How did we land here? However, here we are. And whose plan is it? Who, Who said he raises up one and puts down another? Who has said in Psalm 103, my throne is established in the heavens and my kingdom rules over all? He hasn't gotten off the throne. He hasn't quit ruling. He is still in charge. He's not elected. And he never resigns. You cannot impeach him. This is our God, and he will rule forever. Is there somewhere in your experience where you think that there's something that you desire that's a little bit bigger and better than God? Is there a command of God that you just can't see as coming from the loving hand of a father? that you can't see. There's something that God says to do that you can't see as a grace gift, as a love gift to you. You're on the slippery slope of tossing wisdom and running for despair. Oh, don't, don't do it. Don't run for despair by abolishing or abandoning one grace gift of God. I, again, I think that this is worthy of our, of our deepest consideration of my deepest consideration. Because there are times it's like, I just, I just think that's a little too far, Father. I, I just think that's a little too much. I, I think that I don't have that capacity. I don't have that ability. I don't want to, oh, that's where it really lies. I don't want to do that. And what I'm saying is I don't actually think that you, my Father, have my best in mind. That's headed for despair. You're on the road. Quick, get off the road and take it. Obey it. Obey Him. Fear Him. And finally, do you mind clicking that? Sorry. There we go. Is there any place where you're trying to live the God life without God? God. If you want to know true despair, that's the place to find it. Try to live the God life without God. That's ultimately what Solomon did. This associating wisdom from its source, he tried to live a life that was wise. And, and interestingly, God let him live a wise life. He retained his wisdom. But he lost everything that came through the connection to the source, and he landed in the darkness that we call Ecclesiastes, in the utter despair, in the blankness and emptiness and worthlessness of life. I don't know about you. I'm always thinking, what will really be significant? What can I do that would matter today? What will really make my life valuable? In fact, frankly, that's an idol that I have to take down. (laughs) on a regular basis I need to be continually dealing with that idol what will make me significant wait that's not the idea it's that they glorify the father in heaven right but but if you want to know what truly will add up to a life that is valuable in the sight of God then you have to live the God life with God you can't separate that life from him so I just appeal to you this morning. And I appeal to myself as well as I have gone through, um, I'll be honest, I've really wrestled for many hours through this process of, of uh, thinking through this, and I know that I'm leaving unanswered questions this morning. Uh, I would like to address them. Uh, there's not time. I'm three minutes over right now. But t- there's not time to address those things this morning. I'd like to do that at some point in time. But I... Uh, So I understand there are more questions that need to be answered about this and what really was taking place in the life of Solomon. But bottom line for this morning, can I just leave you with this one thing? Solomon fell away from God because of what? Maybe you've already got it now. This is almost like a Bible study uh, section here. Uh, But I really would love to hear, why did Solomon fall away from God? He disobeyed. Right. Can we just hold on to that one thing this morning? Can we just hold on to that one thing this morning and say, look, Solomon fell away from God. He walked away in the middle of the most opulence that you can possibly imagine, in the middle of a wisdom that I'll never have. He walked away from God because of one super simple little thing. He just disobeyed. So I'm asking that you think about that in your life today. And as you go through this week, ask yourself simply, am I really truly... Obeying God. Because obedience of, to God is what demonstrates that you actually fear Him, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning.